Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a very uh, interesting founder. You know, I think that we're going to learn quite a bit of uh, doing the full cycle of racing, building, exiting, and then also of all the lessons learned along the way. Because obviously, as as we all know, entrepreneurship is not a straight line. So uh, without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Craig Unger. Welcome to the show today. Thanks, Alejandro. Thanks for having me today. So originally born in Brooklyn, New York, I understand that uh, obviously not a not a very friendly environment then. Um, so uh, tell us about you know growing up there. Yeah, so I was born you know in a pretty uh, middle class section of Brooklyn. I'd say lower middle class. Uh, I went to school at what we call the zoned public high school, which is just the local public high school. Um, I used to have to walk through a series of empty lots. Uh, to get into uh, to go to school, there are some uh, some very questionable things over the years were found in those lots. I won't go into more detail, but let's just say it was it was somewhat of a dangerous environment where I grew up. There were gangs. This was the time where um, the Guardian Angels were formed, and New York was uh, kind of not the same place as post uh, Giuliani, where he really you know helped clean up New York. So I grew up with uh, a lot of stresses on us, both financially and safety wise. Um, then. Uh, when I compared myself to some of my peers here, it's 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 a very different upbringing. Let's just say that. A hundred percent. Because how how big was your apartment? Well, actually, in New York, where I grew up, um, there were it was uh, not brownstones. Those are that was a different part. These were just row houses. They were kind of lower end row houses that were two family row houses. You had to go upstairs to get to the main, and then there was a further set of stairs to get to the second one, and then there was a garage on the ground floor. And what a lot of the landlords did was they they separated the garage into two parts and they rented the other part. They made it into a livable space, about 350 square feet. And all these houses became illegal three family houses. So post my parents getting divorced when I was about 12 years old, we moved into effectively a garage, which uh, had, you know, absolutely no space. It had kind of one main room that was a living room, dining room, my mother's bedroom family room, everything. And then it was just another bedroom, a tiny galley kitchen and a bathroom. So it was, it was very modest. And at that time, my mom had decided post-divorce to go back to school. And my brother and I, he's a year older than I, were in that 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 school that I that I was talking about before. So it was kind of a high pressure, low income environment growing up there. And obviously, you know, for you and 
you know, every every experience and every every phase in our lives really shapes us. Um, you know, the the character, the personality, our our views, uh, and 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 also, you know, like they they really gives us the proper lens, you know, and the analysis uh, for interpreting or to giving, you know, whatever whatever you know, like shot at whatever we have in front of us. I think that you know, in this case, you know, for you, you know, obviously from every event there is there is lessons learned and. And you know whatnot, but but I think that in this case for you, obviously, you know it was it was tough because also uh, I believe that there was you know some some not not really fun things that happened you know with with your best friend or with your grandfather. Uh, if if you would you know like to expand on that, you know like I think that our listeners you know it would really be helpful to really understand you know you as a as a human being as well. Great. Yeah, sure, Alejandro. So a few things for me that were formative were. Um... One was that when I was very young, unfortunately, my grandfather was was murdered in a store in Brooklyn, New York, which obviously just put shockwaves through the family and, you know, was uh, was almost like a defining moment at the same time. Or, I mean, another defining moment. Uh, a few years later, I lost my uh, my best friend in junior high school. Uh, he he was uh, an adult when this happened, he was a young adult and he was he was murdered as well. So those are the kinds of things that were happening around us growing up. Um, but at the same time. Uh, in both a challenging, but also on a, on a more kind of motivational side was my other grandfather on my mother's side, who um, him and my grandmother were both Holocaust survivors and watching him in terms of what he went through to, to put his family into uh, a place where, you know, we can succeed and thrive was extremely motivational, sometimes challenging too, but very, very motivational. So I had all those experiences to work from. So, so I guess, uh... You know, like obviously on the entrepreneurial side, you know, it's all about the resilience, the persistence, the getting, you know, falling and getting back up. How would you say that that this this upbringing, you know, where where it was not, you know, like obviously I'm sure that you had amazing moments, but but it was quite challenging. You know, it was it was it was a lot about survival. How do you think that has shaped you as an entrepreneur and also as a person? Well, so let me expound on what happened with my grandfather, and then I'll answer that question. So with my grandfather, when he came, uh, he, he met my grandmother at a displaced persons camp uh, after the Holocaust. They were both freed from concentration camps. My grandfather, by uh, the American military, he was actually on the side of a road, and he was uh, saved by a Jewish guy from Brooklyn, who turns out I'm a Jewish guy from Brooklyn. Uh, my grandmother was freed by the Russians, and they met in... Uh, in displaced person camp. My grandmother, that's where my mother was born in Italy. My grandmother and my mother came to the United States, but my grandfather couldn't come. So he had to struggle for years just to be able to be with his family. When he got there, he was, uh, he had no money, nothing in his pocket. He was, uh, you know, delivering furniture. My grandfather basically due to malnutrition is about five foot three inches tall. But after going through experiences like that, that were, you know, so physical, in terms of doing what he needed to do to support his family, he he used to be able to uh, bring me to my knees, and I'm oh, I'm six foot three. He used to be able to bring me to my knees with a handshake. That's how strong he was. So we saw him struggle. We saw him, you know, um, get up crack at dawn, come back, and just you know eat and directly fall asleep, and just you know give everything he had to make sure that we had a place, you know, to stay. So I think from from that per and, and a way to thrive, and you know we had everything we needed, and so. It was, you know, we, we had what we needed growing up. It wasn't much more than that, but it was, you know, provided by my grandparents and, uh, you know, also my parents who were struggling as well. So, I mean, I think that when that's your background, you know, it does make you think a little bit differently about, you know, 
uh, being a little bit more careful and making sure that, you know, you're doing the things that you need to do in order to provide for your family on the one hand, but also that the, the things that you're putting your time into, you know, the places you're investing your time are kind of a worthy place to invest and that you're living up to the, um, you know, to the life that was led by, you know, your, your parents and grandparents before you. So I think as, as a child, it gives you a pretty big nut to crack and a pretty high ideal to hit, which could be very motivational and, you know, help you, you know, excel. I suppose there are a lot of instances where it could be destructive too, but, you know, in my, in my case, you know, I was able to turn that, that around and, you know, use it as a motivational factor for my education and my, you know, and my career growth. Uh, but it's, it's always been with me and it's always something that, you know, I, I think about and I, I do, uh, you know, cherish and treasure what my family's done for me. And then Harvard, you know, kind of like uh, was that point, you know, where it was like an inflection point, I guess, in more on the professional side. Uh, where all of a sudden, you know, there's a visit, you know, that happens to school and, and that changed everything for you. What happened? Yeah, that was pretty unique. So my brother is one year ahead of me and he went to the State University of New York at Albany, which was common for good students to do in uh, in New York. And I thought I might go to the same school or one of the city universities. But when I was a junior, uh, I was called down to uh, my guidance counselor's office and there was a woman who was there from Harvard and we had a discussion and uh, after our discussion, she asked me if I would consider applying to Harvard. And of course, you know, I, I got the hint and I was extremely enthused. And um, I, I had never thought that that was something that could be a reality for me. It's just it wasn't really in my kind of sample space to think about that. But I ended up kind of almost immediately applying. I applied to Harvard under what's called an early action program, which is where the student signifies, you know, that that's their top interest to go to that school. And come December, you know, this was before computers, I called up the, the first day. I called up the Harvard admissions office the first day that they had the results. I heard the admissions officer turning pages in a physical book. They were turning the pages of my life. And uh, the person said, yeah, I was admitted. And I couldn't believe it. And I said, can you please check that again? My name is Craig Unger. Are you, are you sure I was admitted? <laughs> and they said, I was admitted. And then uh, I ended up, you know, I was at home. My brother was already in college, so I couldn't tell him. Uh, and my mom and dad were both working. My grandmother, who, who lived, you know, uh, right above us, she was out shopping. So I just started bouncing out into the street telling neighbors, oh, my God, I can't believe it. I got into Harvard. I can't believe it. And that really started, uh, you know, a chapter of my life that dramatically changed my life uh, for the better and was just an amazing experience. That's incredible. And were you always, uh, you know, into like the geeky, you know, into math and, and computer science? And, and if so, like, how, how did that, you know, like, uh, you know, come, come to you, like in front of you? How did you get that interest and, and that love for math and computers? So I always was uh, into math and computer science. I ended up at college majoring in math and computer science. And then in high school, I was uh, captain of my of my math team. And also I was one of 30 kids who was on the New York City math team. And we competed uh, against other you know cities around the country. Um, I think the way that I got into math actually came from my father. My father was uh, an insurance auditor and an accountant. And he used to work for uh, a really large insurance company. Let's just say the good hands people. And um, what he used to do when we were kids is he would give me and my brother math problems that we would have to calculate in our head against a calculator. So I could actually, I got very quick at it. My dad himself was extremely quick at it. And by the time I got to be about 12 or 13, I got to be faster than my dad. And so, you know, it was great for party tricks where, 
you know, you give me two numbers and then as long as you give it to me and then start putting them into the calculator once I've heard it, I could beat the calculator up to a, a pretty decent sized number. So I all of a sudden it became, you know, kind of it went from a party trick to something that uh, I found out in, you know, sixth and seventh grade that I had, you know, somewhat of a of a of a talent for. And I start, and I really enjoyed it. So I said, hey, I should really kind of put my energy toward this. At the same time, I started getting interested in computers. And, you know, again, we didn't have much in the way of money. And, um, you know, one, one, uh, one winter, um, I asked, uh, you know, my mom if we can get uh, a Texas Instruments 99 foray computer for my birthday, for Hanukkah. And, um, you know, it's just funny. She, she, uh, we were in a mall uh, in Long Island. She totally talked me out of it what a silly idea it was. And then, um, you know, at, at holiday time, it appeared, you know, so she'd heard it and she, she ended up getting it for me and for my brother. And we ended up getting into programming that way. And, uh, we became, you know, we got into it and then I ended up doing uh, projects in school and computers and I ended up, you know, winning the Brooklyn science fair and then, you know, joining in the New York math fair and various other competitions that I was doing for programming. I was in the paper, the local paper a couple of times. Uh, and so math and, and computer science just kind of became, you know, my thing. And I enjoyed it very, very much. I enjoy it to this, to this day in terms of even recreationally, you know, emulators, and different things, uh, some of computer history and, and, and those kinds of things. So it was a very formative part of growing up for me. Very cool. And now uh, going back to Harvard. So when you were at Harvard, you know, obviously you, um, you had this buddy that came in and and suggested something that uh, you know really focused very nicely you know your your professional career. So what what happened there? Yeah, this gentleman was uh, was really very um, uh, impactful on my life. He was three years older than than I was, and he actually was my course assistant freshman year. So I was freshman and he was a senior. And when he left, uh, and he left, I later found out to go over to Microsoft. But when he left, he also suggested that I become a course assistant for this class. So I ended up spending three years teaching uh, at Harvard as a course assistant. And that was my job while I was there, because uh, I was on a job study and I needed to hold a job. It was a great job and I loved teaching. Well, when I was a junior doing the job that, that this gentleman had done before, I randomly saw him at the Harvard Science Center and he said, hey, I'm here from Microsoft and I'm recruiting and you should consider coming out to the West Coast over to Microsoft. And, you know, as, as I described, we, we didn't have a lot in the way of, you know, uh, extra money around for traveling and things like that. So I had never been west of the Mississippi growing up. So I thought it was, you know, it sounded like an amazing opportunity, really interesting uh, prospect. So my scene, so during my junior year in the winter, I ended up flying out to uh, Seattle and I was interviewed um, for, I actually flew out to interview for a programmer and they, um, they uh, before I even had my first interview, they changed the agenda to be what's called a program manager at Microsoft, which is very, which is a technical product manager. It's somebody who listens to customers and, you know, and writes uh, recommendations and, you know, writes specifications and those things. And I ended up interviewing and ended up working out and I did an internship uh, in the Microsoft Excel team, working on a feature called the Solver uh, between my junior and senior year, and then I ended up going out to Microsoft full time because I love the experience and I love the area. And especially during the interviewing, you met Bill Gates himself. Tell us about that. Uh, well, that was actually after when I was already full timer, but when I was early on in my career, probably um, two years, no more, and I, I spent twenty one years there. Um, I was contacted. It was it was strange. I was contacted by 
one of Microsoft's executive recruiters, which is particularly strange since A, I was an executive and B, I was already working at Microsoft. And um, the reason was, was because Bill Gates was thinking of uh, his next technical assistant who works closely with him, uh, you know, on technical matters. And so he and I, so he ended up interviewing me uh, and I spent an hour talking to Bill in his office, which was, which was fascinating because most people only interacted with him in the boardroom. And I interacted with him in the boardroom after that many times, but I did have, uh, you know, the ability to kind of sit down and talk with him, which was, which was a lot of fun. Um, it was a really interesting point in my career because I had just started, I was fairly young, but I had just started as the general manager of the Microsoft access team. So I was, I was managing, um, that product for Microsoft. And so it became a very interesting you know, discussion about should I stay on, you know, managing that product and growing it or maybe go and work for Bill. And it, uh, the decision was made to keep me on Microsoft Access. And I spent five years there and grew that business. But it was, it was a great experience to have. And I guess, uh, you know, as you were saying, like interactions on the boardroom or perhaps, you know, like this, this discussions that you had. Now, I'm, I'm sure that looking back now that you're an entrepreneur, you know, you're probably, you know, taking some, um, some tips or, or, or perhaps, you know, like some of those things that you learn or that you saw on, on Bill Gates, you know, as, as a source of inspiration for yourself and your own journey. So I guess, what do you think really has made, you know, Bill Gates, you know, really who he is today? I mean, what were some of the things that you saw from those interactions? Well, I mean, Bill was an extremely motivational leader for me. I mean, he was he was probably, you know, the top, he was the top person, of course, at the company, but he was also probably the most um impactful person that I ever interacted with during my 21 years there. Uh, and I think if I were to say why in short, I think he had an incredible and has an incredible ability to synthesize and take in data. And when you combine that with, uh, you know, such uh, a powerful intellect, he's able to just generate insights uh, at a pace that's very difficult for other people around him to follow. So I think that was probably the base level of what I really came to appreciate about him. But but further than that, I thought from a leadership style perspective, he was, while he was very tough on people, I found him always to be very fair. And one of the things that I tried to emulate that I, I think I just learned from him was the idea that, you know, you could come in with a position to challenge those around you, but when they present you with, you know, a preponderance of the data, you know, truly, truly brilliant people are the first to kind of shoot down their own proposition once they're confronted with the data. And so I found that Bill Gates had no problems doing that. He would be the first person to take in the data and say, okay, I'm going to change my mind here. Um, but if you fed him bad data or something, you wouldn't want to do that. And you wouldn't want to kind of, you know, um, try to, you know, kind of lead him down a path, which, which just kind of wasn't the right path because then he would, he would be, uh, you know, he would challenge you. And sometimes it could be a little bit harsh, but um, nothing beyond what you would expect at that level of a company. And uh, he was just, just a fantastic leader. And obviously, 21 years gives you time to interact with, with a lot of big players. You know, Microsoft. You know, like one of the uh, most incredible companies. You know, in the in the past uh, uh, years. No, but but I guess uh, you know, like there is one call that you received in 2007, also internally, uh, and you were recruited. You know, to a different team in Microsoft by one of the you know guys that now everyone you know recognizes. So so who was this person? Yeah. So when I had finished, uh, I, had, I had done a job for about six or seven years helping to build Microsoft's cloud infrastructure. And in uh, the end of 2006, I was recruited 
um, by Satya Nadella, who's the current CEO of the company, but he, he wasn't at the time. He was leading Microsoft business applications, which was our CRM and our ERP systems. So I was recruited in, um, well, I was recruited for interviews with a number of external candidates. It was an interesting interview process because basically the entire interview was all of my directs. It was just all the people that that would be reporting to me. And uh, I ended up getting that role uh, as the general manager of Dynamic CRM. There was a version 1.0 of the product, but the, the marching orders were to build Dynamic CRM into Microsoft's first enterprise online product. So we shipped Dynamic CRM in April of 2008 as Microsoft's first enterprise online product a couple years before SharePoint and Microsoft Office were actually shipped. So at that point, there was only consumer services like Hotmail and Messenger. And so that was a fascinating uh, period of time. It was far before Azure was announced or available. So we were trying to build all the infrastructure that would support an enterprise cloud service at the same time that we were trying to build that service. And it was it was an amazing experience. And obviously, Satya, I mean, he, he took the reins as the CEO and he definitely turned it around because with Steve Ballmer, you know, it was a period of, of, of being flat, you know, especially on the on the stock uh, side of things. And now, you know, Satya took over and it has gone through the roof. So what was it like to work directly with, with someone like Satya? Well, Satya had, I would say Satya has a lot of the same characteristics that Bill has, but in a much kind of uh, more user-friendly package in the sense that he also has a tremendous ability to synthesize data. He also knows where to go get that data. And he's able to really synthesize quickly into, into very insightful decisions. Satya, in addition, has the ability to motivate uh, followers uh, personally because he's just personally very approachable individual. And he's also extremely genuine uh, and just a very likable person. So he has all that going for, for him as well. So, um, you know, it was, it was great, you know, to work with him. And, uh, also he was put into several leadership positions before he took on the CEO role. And it was great from the perspective of, you know, an employee of the company to see somebody with those characteristics that were actually rewarded and were able to move through the company because, um, oftentimes you have just, you know, the strongest or, or voice, that ends up getting heard, and sometimes they're not the one that does the best job of building teams or building consensus. But Sacha always had, you know, a great balance of all that, and I'm I'm really happy to see that it was rewarded. And I'm sure Microsoft shareholders are very happy to see that it was rewarded. Absolutely, absolutely. And then after 21 years at Microsoft, you decide to go at it. At 44 years old, you go at it and you start your first business. What happened? Yeah. So, uh, well, actually, so I planned to do it a little bit earlier and, uh, you know, in, in the spirit of being, you know, completely transparent, I had some personal issues that, you know, made it difficult to do. I went through a divorce, uh, when I was in my late thirties and that really waylaid my plans to be an entrepreneur. Um, the, it was an issue of contention between me and my ex and, uh, it wasn't, you know, the, the only issue or anything like that, but it was something that, you know, was always there and it was something that was difficult, you know, to get past. Um, once we were, uh, divorced, you know, I, I still didn't do it immediately because uh, I had young children. My kids were both, uh, under four years old when I was divorced. And so I had to spend and wanted to spend a ton of time with them. And, you know, I had the daddy bag, you know, I had, you know, uh, you name it. I had all the accoutrements and, uh, I was focused on, on the kids and setting up, you know, a great, a great life for them. Once they started to get, you know, older uh, and, you know, things start to normalize, I said, okay, now it's time to go and, and pursue this, you know, this ambition and this dream. And so, yeah, I did leave at uh, October of 2012. And then um, I took some time 
to go through some different ideas. I had some friends at Microsoft that were giving me feedback on the different ideas I was sorting through. And then a few months later, I decided with a co-founder who I knew at Microsoft to pursue uh, the company that became Azuqua, which we worked on for five years together. So what ended up being the business model of Azuqua? So Zuko was a low-code environment and uh, an integration environment. You can think of it as a, a cloud, fast time-to-value version of products like Boomi or MuleSoft. You could think of it as similar to something like a Zapier or a Workata or a Trade.io, if, if you know those companies. But basically, it's like a box-narrow environment where you can actually specify the data source, and that could be from Salesforce or NetSuite or SAP. We have 250 connectors. And then uh, very low-code data transformation. You can you know, do all kinds of filters and functions to move your data into the right format to then move it through the pipeline to the next source. So you can write these workflows that are very, very low code in a very simple way that can be done by business analyst instead of having somebody have to code it. So you get greater agility in, in, in the company. Uh, and that's, that's what Azuka was trying to solve. And then how do you guys go about financing the operation and, and scaling up? So we raised, uh, we were in a Techstars program in 2013, and then we raised, coming out of Techstars, uh, about a 400 some odd thousand dollar uh, seed round, which took us a year, uh, through a year. Um, and then in the next year, in 2014, we raised a Series A with a local venture capitalist called Ignition. And that was a $5 million venture round. And the funny thing is, you know, at least in Seattle, that was one of the larger ones, if not the largest in the, in the entire year. Uh, and now, as, as I'm sure you know, Alejandro, $5 million is a pretty small <laughs> Series A, if it's a Series A at all. So things have, have changed a lot. Um, but anyway, we raised that and we started, you know, we shipped our product, started growing the business. We had some nice, uh, you know, top shelf uh, clients, you know, GE, the International Monetary Fund, Procter & Gamble. And then, uh, you know, we grew for, for a couple of years further and then raised a Series B with Ignition coming in pro rata, also DFJ from the Bay Area and Insight from New York. Uh, and we raised uh, just around $11 million there. And then uh, we grew the business a little bit more and then ended up selling it uh, March of 19 to Okta. Wow. And how was it like for you as well? Because here you are coming from Brooklyn, you know, from, from uh, 350, you know, square foot apartment growing up. All of a sudden you start seeing all these millions, you know, like being invested here and there. What, were you a little bit like, you know, kind of like at the beginning, like a little bit scared of, of the movement and all those zeros, you know, bouncing back and forth in front of you? Absolutely. Because, you know, at Microsoft, I had run some pretty large businesses, but the, 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 the closest you get to the money is seeing a budget in an Excel sheet, right? And so you see the money moving around a bit here and there, but you also know that, you know, you're, you're covered because, you know, you're in a company with really, you know, large coffers and the ability to take risk. It's really different when you're kind of triangulating the risk that you're taking with how cash is moving and then the people's lives who you've you know, you've uh, recruited and gotten excited about the mission you're on and thinking about all the alternatives and, you know, how they can impact people. That really is, is very sobering. And, you know, it, it, it makes you kind of it focuses you. Let's just put it that way. It makes you very focused on making sure you're working on the right things and that, you know, you're doing uh, the right combination of taking risks, which is what a startup does, but also finding those places where you can focus and reduce risk to make sure that you can basically elongate the time period where you can, you know, follow this dream and follow, you know, 
follow this idea. So it's, it's, it's uh, an exercise in cognitive dissonance when you do a startup. You know, anybody who does it will tell you one day you feel like you're king of the world and the next day, you know, you feel like a perennial loser. And it's just a question of, you know, are it's you know are there more good days or more bad days you know and uh, that's what you sign up for but then when you when you look at it uh you know as a retrospective you know that is what makes the experience and as you go on you do get more comfortable with it but it definitely you know it takes a certain kind of person and it, it's it's like anything else it takes learning you have to learn how to thrive in a different environment in order to do well in a startup Absolutely. And in this case, the, um, the outcome was quite successful because the company got acquired by, by Okta. So, so what were the terms of the deal? Uh, it, was, it was a pretty simple deal, it was, uh, mostly cash deal, $52.5 million. Uh, and, you know, the company did a good job of retaining the talent in. My co-founder is, is still at Okta there for a couple of years. I probably would have been myself, but uh, I had left about a year before wanting to do uh, a, uh, another startup, which became Hyperproof, the startup I'm engaged in right now. Um, otherwise, I'd probably be there too. Uh, Okta seems to be doing a great job and is a great company to work for from, uh, from the telling of uh, all the folks that I worked with there. They're quite happy. Now, when it comes to co-founders, I know that, you know, that's obviously one of the most important decisions that one makes. Uh, and, you know, in this case, you know, like with a, with your previous companies, you know, like with, with Asuqua, you really learn, you know, like the, what are some of those dynamics with, with co-founders, you know, perhaps, you know, like, especially if it's a little bit bumpy and some of the dynamics and, and how that affects as well at a, at a board kind of level. No? So, so what are, what would you say are like your, your biggest two or three lessons uh, and perhaps those that you're willing to share with people that are listening when it comes to really finding a co-founder and making sure that, that you're doing the proper, you know, recruiting uh, type of uh, measures or, or things rather than just jumping at it, you know, because of the enthusiasm, you know, like blindly. Yeah. And that is my first lesson, which is there are a lot of people um, hooked together as co-founders because they share the same enthusiasm for a particular idea. But I think that is not a good reason, you know, I mean, it's or a way to say it is it's necessary, but it's nowhere near sufficient uh, in order to pick a co-founder. Obviously, you want somebody who's excited about it, but that's table stakes. And if the idea is really one that passes muster, there'll be a lot of people out there who will be excited about it. So that's that's one lesson is, is you're going to have to dive a whole lot deeper than that. Um, the second one is, you know, startups are full of highs and lows. And I think really thinking about during the periods where it's darkest, who do you want next to you and how do they process, uh, you know, challenges? How do they make decisions? Is it compatible with your style? You know, oftentimes you hear that, you know, picking a co-founder is a little bit like getting married to somebody. And it really, it really is. You will likely have more disagreements and skirmishes um, with your co-founder than you would at home. Uh, and that was certainly true, true of us. And so the question is, how do you get through it? Are you able to get better at, you know, resolving issues of uh, great importance for the company as you guys grow and grow the company? And you have to make an assessment of whether you and your co-founder can actually grow together in that way. And then probably the last thing, which was certainly a lesson um, for me, was more of around skill set. Um, my co-founder was very talented, uh, at Azuqua. But at the end of it all, I think he and I had very similar skill sets. And I think what happened was, I think we both thought we were getting complementary skill sets in one another when we were actually getting similar and important skill sets. But it left some really important areas of the company with less coverage than we needed. Uh, and I think, you know, 
understanding how how you're going to get that coverage and also being able to be you know completely transparent with one another about what you as founders are good at and what you need help with is one of the most important things toward the success of the company and so i think that's another key attribute to have when you're picking a founder absolutely absolutely so then tell us about hypergroup uh, hyperproof so is your your most recent chapter and is your new baby so what mm-hmm. happened here with hyperproof how did you bring it to life what was that process like well, it, it, Hyperproof came from a series of uh, of experiences I had. One of which was at Microsoft, and I wrote it. I wrote about it on the um, the, the site, uh, the Hyperproof site, as the founding story. But basically, Microsoft had had an issue where one of our uh, marketers had said that uh, Windows Live ID, which was called Passport at the time, was our our main ID system, was secure. And to make a very long story short, you know, you you really can't make blanket claims like that. And Microsoft kind of ran afoul with the government. And uh, after a series of discussions, Microsoft and the FTC had agreed to do a 20-year consent decree where, this was back in 2002, where Microsoft agreed to some very deep uh, standard operating procedures that Microsoft had to abide by with a very significant fine structure if those were not uh, carried out. And so we had to undergo audits every two years, and they were very deep, and they really uh, stopped a lot of our progress and development because we were so focused on making sure that the audit went well. So between that experience and a similar, although smaller scale experience that I had at my first startup, I looked back and I said, Alejandro, you know, no matter how big a company, no matter how small a company, there's really no good way to uh, prepare and manage your compliance process. It always seems to be a very reactive, you know, type of, of process. There's no tools for it. It's very hard to to kind of find the data you need, very difficult to get what you need from the folks that you need it from because they don't necessarily think about compliance. And so we started thinking deeply about what's a better way to actually do this. And and to make a long story short, the founding hypothesis behind Hyperproof is that the world is ready for a new type of business application that is focused on compliance. Uh, You know, if you ask a head of sales what their system of record is, they'll tell you it's a CRM system. If you ask a CFO, what's your system of record? They'll say it's an ERP system. And if you ask a CISO or head of compliance, what's your system? In most all cases, they don't have one. They're just, you know, either taking existing tools and trying to, you know, um, tie them together and try to get some productivity out of, you know, spreadsheets and email and that type of thing. But they really don't have a system of record. And that's what Hyperproof is. It's the world's first business application. It's a single source of truth and a system of record for your compliance activities done in a very modern cloud SaaS way. Very, very cool. And obviously you guys are uh, still at an early stage. I mean, you, you're you kind of like on the, you just raised some money. You, you raised uh, $3 million, uh, so far for the business, so still at the very early stages. But I'm sure that you guys are not going to have any issues because of the you know previous exit that you have uh, under your belt. Now, I know that really, you know, like people probably think of, of a seed stage, you know, or a seed round as being, you know, like super easy, uh, but obviously, you know, like in your case, you know, I think that you had a few challenges, not not only the fact that you were, you know, like uh, having your first round in place, you know, making sure that the structure was right, that the right people were coming in, but then also for you as well, perhaps quite a learning process because on the last company and also on the last experiences, it was more on the engineering side. Here you're taking the reins as the as the business guy. So, so how was that for you? 
absolutely a challenge and something that I really wanted to step up to. So one of the things that was different when we raised uh, pretty much about a year ago, our seat round was, uh, you know, just the environment around, there's been so much growth in the Seattle area, so much growth, Amazon driving a lot, Microsoft driving a lot, um, that the cost structure itself is quite different. You know, when I did Azuqua, we used to think, oh, I'm so happy I'm not in the Bay Area because we can actually do this for a little cheaper. And certainly Seattle is still a little cheaper than the Bay Area, but it's gotten much, much more expensive, which affects everything. It affects what you have to raise and, and some of those pieces. So, um, you know, whereas our seed round was 400 some odd thousand dollars, let's call $400,000 for Azuqua, we raised a $3 million seed round here. And, you know, I wanted to be agile and I wanted to uh, make sure that, you know, we reserve institutional money for the right period of time in the journey. So I decided to raise $3 million from seed investors, which actually you would think Ought, it ought to be very challenging. I think I was very fortunate, maybe uh, good good connections, track record, et cetera. So we were able to raise $3 million uh, pretty quickly. But um, absolutely, uh, the other piece that you're mentioning, Alejandro, around now me taking the reins of both the product and strategy side, but also sales and marketing is very significant. It's actually presents some of the most significant personal growth for me in this role. And, you know, it's, it's the area that I go after new learnings and new data incessantly because, you know, I just, I don't necessarily believe that I, I come with that data, you know, as part of my experience, you know, I've 21 years in the product side. So uh, it's been great. I've been learning really, really quickly. And we've been putting systems, you know, in place to make sure, including advisors and other things to make sure that we're getting the right learnings on sales and marketing and how to progress that part of the business at the same pace. Because I think at the end of the day, a startup is like, it's like cooking a meal, all the different pieces have to be ready at the same time. Otherwise, you're burning money, let's say on the product side if sales and marketing isn't ready, or the opposite, right? So getting that that kind of uh, confluence of things to happen is the absolute challenge and what we're very focused on here at Hyperproof right now. Very cool, very cool. So, so Craig, one of the questions that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is, you know, it's a, it's amazing the journey that, that you've had, you know, personally, professionally, uh, and, and, and obviously, you know, like all the experiences and the lessons learned. So, so if I was to ask you, you know, if, if you had that opportunity, Craig, to go back in time and, and perhaps have a chat with, with that Craig that we're still in, at Microsoft, working at Microsoft and, and dreaming, you know, like, what would that be when you were to launch a business, you know, or perhaps, you know, thinking already about maybe giving your notice and launching a business. If you had the time to go back to that, you know, Craig and, and have a chat with, with him and, and, and give your younger self one piece of business advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, knowing what you know now? Well, I think um, that's a good question. I think uh, probably um, the biggest two pieces of advice I'll answer, one would be to get started even earlier, <laughs> which is actually, uh, you know, I don't know if that's what you expected to hear. But again, I started post 40 and I think probably it would have been good in the environment to, to start earlier, get that experience earlier and really realize that. You know, I would also tell myself that the first experience you have as an entrepreneur doesn't have to be necessarily the knock it out of the park success. I would really try to outline to my younger self that it's it's a journey. Right. So get started early and treat it as a journey. You know what I'm saying? So that you can you can get the experience and you could make yourself a better entrepreneur. Uh, that's really kind of the key piece. And then maybe. The other thing I would tell myself, um, which I think I've done an okay job at, but I think it's always a lesson that's worth uh, that that's worth reiterating, is that don't ever start a startup 
just because you want to, you know, make a lot of money or see your name in lights. Those are the wrong reasons to start a startup. Now, if you can get those things, it's great. And we all do hold them as as goals at some level. I'm not saying any uh, anything different, but the main reason to start a startup in my mind and the thing that will actually have will get you through the hardest times, you know, the darkest nights is when you realize that you're working on something that you believe has to exist out in the world. It just has to exist. And you're the one who wants to be that person that brings it to the world. If that's the reason why you start a particular company, also, if you've already decided to start a company and you use that as the way to filter your ideas, so you don't just look at market potential and some of those other things and the trendiness, but you say, this is something critical. It's change that I want to bring to the world. Then you will actually survive both the tough times and the good times. And then you have a much better chance of success because you're doing it for the right reason. I think that's probably the, those are the critical lessons that I would, I would make sure the younger me understood. That's amazing. Well, Craig, thank you so much for that. So for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Oh, you can actually just email me at craig at hyperproof.io, C-R-A-I-G at hyperproof.io. Happy to discuss anything we discussed here and other topics. Uh, I, the, the, the startup community was very generous to me when I was first coming out of Microsoft, and I love to you know pay, pay it forward and just be a part of that community. So let me know if I can help. Amazing. Well, Craig, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you, Alejandro. I very much appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.